0: dag og velkommen til Langsom Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i denne uge talt med en kvinde, som har rejst rundt på verdenshavene med de store containerskibe. Hun har været med på tanker, og hun har været i de hemmelige, kæmpe store industrihavne, som vi andre ikke har adgang til. Det er den iransk fødte amerikanske forsker Lolle Khalili, som har skrevet bogen The Sign News of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. Lalle hun har undersøgt de forsyningskæder, som der er blevet så meget snak om her under covid-krisen, men som vi ikke rigtig har talt om før. Det sindrige net af forbindelser over hele kloden, som for vores produktion, vores transport, vores forbrugscentrum, det hele til at hænge sammen. Hun har med andre ord besøgt den del af hele vores forbrugsunivers, der som regel forbliver usynlig for os. Og den har hun gjort tydelig og klar. Hun har bragt den ind i billedet, kan man sige, med sin fantastiske undersøgelse. Hun fortæller historien om, hvordan der er opstået nye hemmelige havne, som er kæmpestore industrielle komplekser, hvor al verdens varer bliver bragt ind og som almindelige mennesker ikke har adgang til uden for byerne, mens vi andre sidder i de gamle havne, der er blevet lavet om til restauranter og forlystelseskvarterer og små hyggelige sceniske panoramascenarier. Og pointen er ligesom, at der er en synlig kapitalisme, som er den, vi lever i, og hvor vi får billige, fantastiske telefoner og friske råvarer fra hele verden hele året og alle mulige komponenter meget billigt. Og så er der en usynlig kapitalisme, som er forudsætningen for det, og det er den usynlige kapitalisme, som Lale Khalili i den her samtale vil fortælle os om.
1: Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially good evening to you, Lale Halili, who's with us from London. Thank you so very much for taking your time.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me and for pronouncing my name so perfectly.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i had a little help from home because my wife she's from <laughs> she's she's from iran so we're very proud about the the pronunciation and i just want to thank you first you've written a wonderful book and it made me realize a lot of things that i i didn't see before i want to say also that i think it's a very impressive book because it's also a cultural history you use a lot of literature so so how did you come up with the with the idea for this wonderful project
2: Um, The the reason that I came up with the project is actually it came from two different directions. I was finishing a book about counterinsurgency warfare and I was interviewing a US military officer and one of the things that he told me was that um, us academics and journalists seem to be very interested in the bloody part of warfare, Uh, so what happens at the front lines and the destruction and the death and what we're not interested in, what we don't often look at, although that is no longer true, is um, the the sort of the back end, the financial, the economic. Parts of it. So that was one of the things that really kind of signaled that I really needed to start looking at the military logistics that went into the counterinsurgency wars that the US was involved in throughout, um, well, well, most of the 21st century. Um, from the other direction, a very close friend who was working for the International Transport Workers Federation, which is a global union working with seafarers and dockers and various other transport workers, um, was very curious about the kind of processes of... Um, Maritime work that was happening in the Arabian Peninsula, and because so much of the focus of the funding and organisation of uh, these global unions is actually on places in Southeast Asia, was actually uh, in Asia and Southeast Asia. um, He was wondering if if this was particularly a research project that I wanted to maybe undertake in order to understand what was going on. And so once I started doing the research, it became clear to me that this is a really exciting area of research, in part because there is a, quite a lot written about maritime stuff having to do with the Arabian Peninsula or the Arab world. But most of it has to do with the 19th century um, uh, and before. And what is written often about the 20th century tends to be very perfunctory, tends to be very sort of business oriented, tends to have very little you know, detail, uh, tends to be very kind of arid man- Management level type documentation, which I wasn't particularly interested in. And so that provided a really good area of research um, that I ended up wanting to dig into.
1: And you you work in a lot of different levels. You, you could say that you have the theory uh, that you're obviously well acquainted with. You do deep research into archives and maritime regulations and trade orders and 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 then you've actually been on these boats as well. So you've be, been doing field studies. Can you tell us a little bit about how, how you work with and and, and these different approaches?
2: Absolutely, yes. Um, so uh, one of the things that you mentioned when in your very lovely, generous introduction was the fact that I also seem to really like um, literary works. And that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that I did when I started on this project, because I was completely new to the maritime stuff, I knew nothing. Um, I mean, I had read Moby Dick. That's about it, pretty much. I mean, and so one of the things that I ended up doing was actually uh, went on Facebook at the time and asked people to introduce, uh, you, know, you know, you do one of these crowdsourcing things on on Facebook, where you say, what have you read about maritime stuff that is of interest? And I ended up getting the most amazing list of literary works. And so I started by reading literary works. And it's interesting, because of course, that is absolutely the best way to introduce yourself into a new subject, because it gives you a texture and a detail and a sense of affect and emotion around the subject that is not that is way better, in fact, than a lot of academic writing, I I can say this as an academic. And so I really want I started off with that. And in fact, I have a blog um, somewhere um, called thegaming.org where um, when I started the project almost 10 years ago now um, I actually would read these um, these kinds of literary works and would do brief reviews of them and so That really actually helped me with uh, with starting off with understanding the details and the texture. And then um, around the same time that I'd started doing the research, so actually reading um, historical accounts around uh, the Arabian Peninsula and sort of trying to dig up in academic journals and journalism about this, um, I read a Financial Times article about a guy who was writing his own book about traveling on a container ship. And he actually mentioned having gone on a container ship. And at the bottom of the Financial Times article, it had something about the name of a uh, specific um, travel agency that has unfortunately closed since then, but which dealt with people who wanted to go travel on freighters. Um, it it was pretty much only container ships. You really, because of liability and other reasons, you really can't get onto tankers, which is the one that I really would love to at some point (laughs) get permission to go on. And so I actually looked at this and I got on two different container ship trips, one in 2015 and one 18 months later towards the end of 2016, but the same uh, starting and end point. And so the starting point was um, Malta, uh, and the end point was Jabal Ali in Dubai, the port of Jabal Ali in Dubai in, in the United Arab Emirates. Um, but the routes were different on these two trips. So um, they stopped in different locations, which made for very interesting experiences. Um, The second trip was much longer, and it actually made stops in Beirut, where I had lived and done a lot of work previously. And so it was fascinating for me to arrive into Beirut from the seaside, from the ship, rather than from the land or through um, uh, air. Um, It went to Turkey, but most importantly, it went to uh, Jeddah. Um, and uh, I had managed to actually secure visas to travel to all of the different places that I wanted to research with two exceptions. And those two exceptions were Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, where I was denied entry. I think in part because this was a time that there was quite a lot of tension going on between Iran and these countries. And they I guess they recognized that I was Iranian, despite the fact that I was traveling with my American passport. Um, so that meant that I actually got to go to Jeddah, but from the ship side. Uh, and so this, the experience was actually, because was it not only you, you get to travel on the sea which was an amazing experience and if i can repeat it i will do so but also because you end up talking at great length to quite bored seafarers when for example they're sitting in the um in the ship's wheel room and uh, and you end up talking to them and some of them have you know decades of experience and so it was fascinating for example to talk to a captain and the captain was from uh Croatia talk to this captain who was this extraordinary amazing very experienced guy who um, had travelled um, the same route over the course of 30 years. And so he he could tell you how the ports had changed, how travel on the sea had changed, the encounters that they had with different navies or with different countries' uh, port controls, which ports had become more important in that time period and which had receded in importance. And so um, information that actually is really ho- surprisingly difficult to get to uh, difficult to find unless you go looking in trade journals, sort of um, the you know the business journals of maritime stuff. But you don't with those with that work. You don't really get that texture and detail and the exciting kind of um, color that these um, amazing captains and seafarers could tell me. The other thing that was really amazing about that particular element of travel was that, of course, you also I also got to talk to the seafarers who were mostly Filipino, although there were some Asian. Um, the, some Chinese and some uh, uh, Carolyn Indian uh, seafarers there and and of course that experience was also quite um, uh, useful because you do get a sense also of the kinds of, um, of vast disparities between the working conditions of European and non-European seafarers aboard the same ship um, and so that experience was extraordinary and then of course as an academic you know I've done ethnographic work and I've done archival work and, um, and it's quite a lot of fun to sit there and go through the back issues of um, newspapers and trade journals and magazines and things like that and so combining all of this um, in part because there was so little information about the kinds of things that I wanted to research but in part also because I think you really do need these different aspects of the same subject in order to get a sense of the richness of it the complexities of it and the history of it Um, and that's why I included all of those (laughs) different kinds of elements in the research.
1: And and you call it an amphibious story in the the beginning. I will say, after I read it, I realized how many levels that I'd been on during the read. So I'm very impressed that you actually managed to put it together as a coherent study, because it does appear as a a coherent story. And one of the things that struck me was the conditions of this workforce, of these seafarers, European workers who are at the top of the hurricane, they work on some conditions, and you have people on the bottom that work on an absolutely terrible condition. This was also something that we were made aware of during COVID-19. Can you tell us about this kind of transnational workforce and their condition? Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, uh, of course, you're from
2: Denmark, and uh, Scandinavian countries, and particularly Sweden, Norway, and and Denmark itself, are actually major seafaring countries. Um, Denmark, of course, is also home to, uh, at the moment, number two, but uh, up until about a couple of months ago, the number one shipping company in the whole world, Maersk. Um, And so, um, in a way, it it, it is quite um, uh, important to to mention what processes have resulted in this kind of a dual wage system. There was a In in the period, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, there was an expansion, of course, of global shipping as as, um, the global economy expanded. And so you had the introduction of many seafarers from many parts of the world. But you also had um, gradually the erosion of the the power of seafaring unions on board a lot of these ships. Um, And and in fact, um, what you also saw was um, quite strong arm tactics by some of the shipping companies. Um, There's a really wonderful Swedish scholar by the name of Johanna Markula, who has, for example, written about, she herself is the daughter, actually, of a Swedish ships captain. Um, And she has done enormous amounts of research. And she recently has written about the way that, um, for example, in uh, in Sweden, some of the shipping companies are strong-arming the unions and are saying that they will take all of their ships to flags of convenience, which I will explain in a moment, unless the union, Agree to softer working to or worse working conditions and also to give up some of those union jobs at the same time these jobs are of course given in on some of these ships that have flags of convenience to workers from the global south who often are in desperate need for jobs and who are not often protected by their own governments and so uh, or by their own unions and so what you find is on board these ships you have the emergence of a dual wage system where often you European officers have much better working conditions, much higher wages, much shorter contracts versus the Global South. Um, seafarers who have much longer contracts, for example, having to stay on board the ship for nine months at a time versus four months, for example, for European seafarers and contracts that pay a lot less. And this is happening because of of both this process of shipping companies, strong arming unions, but also because of this thing that I mentioned, which is flags of convenience. So flags of convenience. We know, for example, to give you a parallel example, is that we know that a lot of companies will take their heads. Headquarters to offshore havens, mm. right? To places which don't have as much taxation, which they're not scrutinized. They can essentially hide themselves behind secrecy laws, for example, or much laxer regulatory processes. And flags of convenience is essentially a form of offshoring. And what it does is it means that certain countries um, have flags or registries, ship registries, where owners from Anywhere in the world, France, uh, the Netherlands, China, the US, can register their ships to these flags of convenience, where the labor and environmental regulations are much laxer, where insurance insurance requirements are not as strong, and where the governments often don't have the capacity to inspect devastating effects that happen on board ships. And when you take these people, when you take your ships on to, to flags of convenience, then you can pay the people who work on board these ships much lower wages. And we see the effects of this. We have seen the effects of this with COVID. Because as you mentioned, of course, we had sh- seafarers that were abandoned on board ships. Um, sometimes, for as I said, the um, requirement, the sort of the treaty agreement is that seafarers are not allowed. Really, to remain on board a ship for more than 11 months, and most contracts are around nine months. But when COVID happened, there were seafarers that were actually on board ships for 24 months, so for two years without being able to come off the ships or see their families. And of course, during that time, often their wages also stopped paying them. Um, uh, So they were on board the ship; they were being fed, but they weren't making any money. And so, it was enormously terrible conditions. And of course, in a lot of cases, seafarers were became ill. Uh, This was was particularly bad for um, uh, cruise ships where there are more than 30, for example, 30 is usually the the higher level uh, number of seafarers on board a freighter, um, container ship or tanker or uh, bulk carrier. But cruise ships have um, not only seafarers but also other crew members who work there, particularly in hospitality. Um, And so they could have hundreds of workers. And we saw instances of hundreds of seafarers being being sick on board a ship because of course they live six to a room or eight to a room. And if one got COVID, everybody got COVID. And then they couldn't, land you know, that when when they got into a port, they couldn't land, they were not allowed to actually even come close to the port. And so there were instances where very, very sick seafarers had to be taken off the ships by helicopter. Um, And of course, many of them died. And sometimes their bodies had to be put into the refrigerator of the ship until they could get that body off at some port where they were allowed to come out. And so what we see is just enormously devastating conditions of work. And of course, COVID intensified that. at a moment that shipping companies are making more profits than almost any time in the post-Second World War history. This has been some of the some of the richest moments for the shipping companies all around the world. They're just posting profits that are mind-boggling and they're not they're paying something like six percent in corporate taxes on that and of course the seafarers that are actually doing the work um, and the dockers who are doing the work they're not seeing any of those profits.
1: And I think it's also, it, it's, it's, it's a kind of parallel experience to the frontline workers, because at this moment in time, you realize how dependent we are on these supply chains. And these supply chains are, of course, depending on these seafarers and, and, and these workers. And you see, which was a surprise to me, that yeah. it's not just for cars and computers and video games and, and, and all sorts of advanced technological products that that you rely on these supply chains. It's also quite basic medical material, like some yeah. of these masks that I thought yeah. was something that we could produce here in Denmark. And we were waiting for ships from China to, to bring them. Yeah. So at the same time as you realize that we're absolutely depending on these supply chains and these seafarers, it's being shown that they have the most horrible working condition. Yeah. And as you mentioned, Maersk is uh, the biggest and now just the second biggest in the world. We don't take a lot of pride in their size here. At least we, we don't <laughs> in, this, in this newspaper. And I was struck is there was never any debate about the conditions of, uh, of the seafarers here. Never. And we are like one of the biggest employers in the world.
2: Yeah yeah i think that's that's absolutely the case and what's really interesting about this is that shipping has become so cheap that one example that everybody gives is that fish is caught in scotland on the say the north in the north sea it is flown to china to be processed and deboned and then flown back to europe to be consumed for example in copenhagen and it's actually cheaper to do that kind of work because labor is cheaper in in China and shipping is cheaper and of course the effect of this is that um, you are losing manufacturing jobs um, uh, and what you are seeing is of course um, also environmental effects of this is because of course shipping is one of the biggest polluters corporate polluters in the world alongside airlines and so this the effects of this are astonishing and and as you say this has become a little bit clearer because of COVID this, and, and the kinds of shortages that we have seen and, and the dependence we have on the workers in other parts of the world for, the, for producing the kinds of goods that we are um, using in a day-to-day basis. Um, when, and actually not just COVID, but also when that ship got stuck in the Suez Canal, last year, one of the things that was really interesting was that there was enormous concern actually in Europe, because India is one of the world's biggest vaccine manufacturers. And so there was going to it definitely be ships that are going to be stuck behind um, Ever Given in um, in in the Suez Canal that were going to be carrying vaccines with them, and so there was there was at the time quite a lot of concern about this. Another thing that had emerged out of that was that Mercedes Benz, um, which has just in time manufacturing, depends on a lot of parts that are manufactured in um, different parts of China, China, Vietnam, and other locations, and of course then it couldn't actually go forward. With manufacturing a whole car, because like a teeny little part, a little bolt or something that is manufactured in China could not arrive. Um, and of course, what we see is that at the same time that shipping costs are so incredibly low. Um, the shipping companies are making enormous amounts of profits and those profits are not going to the workers. Um, they're not being put towards reducing um, uh, environmental effects of, the sh- of shipping unless they're forced to do so by, for example, the EU. Um, and of course, it's not going to the cities, which are constantly asked to expand and expand and expand in order for their ports to accommodate uh, these ships that are getting larger and larger and larger all the time. So, um, so it, is, it is in a way a kind of a crystal of how, of how capital works globally um, is that um, uh, some things are cheaper, uh, but those cheaper consumer products are coming at enormous cost to the people who are doing the work and to the
1: environment. Yeah, I remember a guy that, uh, that used to be a minister here who's from the right, and he said to me, well, all you people on the left, you, all, you always criticize capitalism, and you don't want to acknowledge that you're part of a very, very dirty global game in order to get the clothes that you're wearing, the iPhones that you're giving your kids and the computers that you're producing to make your progressive newspaper. And I think one of the strengths of your book is that you put something into vision that was invisible, be invisible to a lot of people. I mean some were maybe uh more enlightened than me and they would have seen, but but not me. And I think the port is kind of a metaphor for that or not a metaphor, it's a concrete place where it takes place. And I think you there's such a wonderful Passage in your book where we describe that we have these in our metropolises in the West. We have these old traditional ports where we have restaurants and entertainment, and this very, very I think culturally interesting aesthetization of the old industrial installments and the old industrial buildings. So, so the our ports are beautiful, and they're places to hang out, and they're places where rich people even come to hang out. And then you have these new ports that are just outside the city, and that are kind of invisible. Can you tell a bit about this transformation of the port as an institution?
2: I think the European example that I always like to mention is Marseille. Aside from the fact that it's my favorite city in France, I think that there is something about the way that that process has worked there, which actually probably your um, listeners you're in, in Copenhagen will also recognize. So the port of Marseille, the Vieux-Port, was um, the, the traditional port, which is now um, surrounded, by, um, uh, surrounded by hotels and bars and restaurants. And it often in the morning has a um, kind of a fish market. Market that is very scenic and people come and buy their fresh fish and it's actually a real market. Um, but also the, the only kinds of boats that actually come into the viewport are these smaller fishing uh, boats, personal kind of fishing boats, not the big trawlers, um, and pleasure crafts um, and ferries that take people, for example, to Chateau and, and and other kinds of um, little islands around there. Um, sometime at the end of the 19th century, um, the, the actual big functioning ports, that, that the actual freight work, was shifted a little. A little bit further west um and in fact, if you go to that area today, um, that has also been now transformed into a kind of a tourist destination with lots of restaurants in the old warehouses. Um, but now, that port is no longer the main freighter uh, freight port for Marseille, um, and it has actually become where the cruise ships come, slightly smaller cruise ships, um, as well as the ferries that go to, um, for example, Corsica or to North Africa. Um, and the real port now the the sort of the real freight port where all of the big container ships go um is actually 40 kilometers further west in fos sur mer although that's supposedly the port of marseille it is 40 kilometers out and the reason that it is so far out is, is several fold one um, they of course say that they need more space in order to put all of those containers because of course we we the, the processing um, of freight has changed so dramatically since the end of the second world war where back then freight would come people would unload it and it would be immediately processed now freight actually comes in big huge containers those containers are stored and then those containers are the ones that are actually moved from one location to another um, on trains or on trucks on big trucks um, or in fact put back on smaller ships and sent, or bigger ships and sent elsewhere. Um, And so, on the one hand, you have much, a lot more space at Fort Soukmer in order to have these container uh, parks. But also, I think I I genuinely believe that one of the other reasons that this has happened is because dockers used to be and continue to be some of the most intransigent workers. They engage in um, labor activity and strikes all the time. And when you put a port all the way out there, they're not going to have immediate uh, support and visibility from the city itself. This is 40 kilometers out. In order to get to there, you have to probably drive, uh, because there are not even train lines that go there. Um, and not only that, you'd have to, in order to get into the port, you'd have to go through a whole lot of security things. And so there's no way that they can get support. So on the one hand, this kind of a distant warehousing ports allow for more space for this new modality of transportation, but also it actually cuts off the workers. And cuts off the seafarers from the city that could have supported them. We see this happening in actually in every city that has a very large freight port, large modernized freight port. It happened in Dubai. In Dubai, the old port was the Doe port right there on the creek. And it has been turned into kind of a tourist attraction um, where there you know the, the actual dough trade is still an ongoing trade. But even that has now been shifted out of the creek so that all you get now on the creek are the kind of the touristy doughs that are turned into restaurants on on the water or you know pleasure cruises um rather than actual functioning freight. Um, And it's interesting that that attempt to invisibilize what is so fundamental to our everyday life is really, on the one hand, to make all of this more difficult for us to see, but also to cut off the workers from the population. It is one of the most successful ways in which you can turn an intransigent population into a docile one or at least an unsupported one.
1: You mentioned this port at Jebel Ali in, in Dubai, which is very interesting, I think, because it's a huge port and it doesn't have a huge consumer base. But this port is, seems to me to be kind of iconic for, for this maritime capitalism that yeah. you described. Could you tell us a little bit about this port?
2: So I think one of the things that makes Jabal Ali really interesting is
1: that actually, in many ways, it's very similar
2: to the port of Singapore, right? Singapore is a city state. It's it's a big city state. It's got a lot of population, but it's a city state, much like Dubai. Dubai is also a city state. And both of these, um, Singapore is um, sometimes number three, sometimes number four port in the world. Jabal Ali is the only port um, not in Uh, East or Southeast Asia that often appears in the top 10 list. Um, Rotterdam sometimes competes with Jabal Ali. And Rotterdam is, again, the only European port that sometimes could appear in that top 10 list. But in both Jabal Ali and Singapore's case, what makes them interesting is that they're entrepots they're transit ports. What they have essentially transformed themselves into is a um, massive uh, kind of a free zone plus transport freight reception um, industry area, which can receive enormous amounts of freight and then distribute it all around it. So one of the things about Jabal Ali that is interesting is that it actually sits on a part of the Persian Gulf or the Arabian Gulf, which is quite shallow. And so, in order for these increasingly bigger ships that get deeper and deeper and deeper into the water to arrive there, the channel that the ships come into has to constantly be dredged. It has to constantly be dug up so that the ships don't ground at the bottom of the um, at the bottom of the Persian Gulf or Arabian Gulf. And so they, they do this and they pay for, for Jabal Ali to actually have this very deep channel. And then these very large ships arrive into Jabal Ali and their cargo is taken off and distributed onto either container ships or actually some of it even taken out of the port and loaded onto those smaller motorized doughs, the the sort of the traditional um, ships, uh, which are now metal. They're no longer wood, but they still have that kind of an old school traditional uh, boat shape. They're quite beautiful to look at. And, And so the cargo is taken off of those mega, mega ships, and put onto smaller ships and distributed, um, for example, up the Gulf, where the depth, the draft of the sea is even shallower, and so it cannot receive those mega big ships, or put on trucks and distributed, um, for example, into the Arabian Peninsula itself, or put on trucks and driven, for example, to Iraq or... um, or further to Jordan. And so what you see is these entrepôt ports because of, um, for example, the depth of the port or because of the fact that they can muster much cheaper and sort of controlled and disciplined labor. Um, And because they have access to a lot of subsidiary markets across the water, for example, in Iran or in Iraq or in Pakistan or indeed in India, uh, these ports end up becoming very important even though they don't necessarily have their own inbuilt market to support them. So the UAE itself is really no more than, um, let's say a dozen million people but the port of Jabal Ali uh, probably serves hundreds of millions of people, some of them in Iran and Iraq and Pakistan and India, some of them further on into the Levant. And so I think that that's something that when we when we see that also with Singapore doing the same thing, uh, where the city itself receives just only a very tiny fraction of the goods that arrive in there. And instead, what we see is the distribution of the goods from Singapore to all of these other smaller ports in the region and or into the hinter. Land um, into Malaysia or into India and and further on elsewhere.
1: It appears to me that that or oh, I can say that a benefit for me from your book, I don't know what your project was, but this is another picture of the Middle East than we usually see. You that very and I I think that's not just the journalists but the scholars as well that there's a there are some very specific stories that are often told about the Middle East and we know them. I don't have to repeat them there and it's even more embarrassing for me being an iranian family. But you kind of, uh, with this focus, putting the Arabian Peninsula into the system of, of global trade and maritime capitalism, you give us another picture of, of the Middle East and also, I think another history of the colonialism in, in in the in the Middle East was that kind of a project for you.
2: That was absolutely a project for me. I mean, I am a Middle East scholar. Um, I speak uh, Persian, but I also speak Arabic, and so I think and I read Arabic, and and so I think that part of the project was. Uh, it it has always been very important for me to first situate the Middle East in a set of global relations so every project that I have worked on has tried to de-exceptionalize the Middle East to say that not only is it geographically and historically connected to all the countries surrounding it but that it has always been that the entire region has been an always important node of um, the movement of ideas of the movement of people of the movement of cargo of the movement of capital and of course of the movement of wars and so we tend to think of the Middle East whenever it comes up in the news, um, you, you get different kinds of things. So, Beirut is, for example, a, a kind of a symbol of catastrophe, Iran was for a time a symbol of fanaticism, uh, Dubai, for example, was a symbol of um, bling, uh, Saudi Arabia is, uh, my god knows, you know, I mean, there are all of these countries you have all of these different kinds of um, cliches that attach to them, uh, and often those cliches don't not often always those those cliches don't convey the richness of the histories of these places the ways in which they're completely and utterly interconnected not only to their neighbors but also to far further countries in europe um in further east in asia um and of course to the the global metropole in the us and so i think it's been really my task um with all of my projects, with all of the books that I've written, my first one about Palestine, my second book about counterinsurgency, and not this one about maritime transport, to say that there is nothing hermetically sealed or enclosed or distinctive or exceptional about the Middle East, um, except for the fact that it's exceptionally exceptionalized. Uh, it is, in fact, interconnected, and it's, in fact, a very central to the ways in which We think about the movement of ideas. We think about the movement of people. We think about the movement of cargo, even. And so I think that that um, I'm really glad that you picked up on that. That is really something that I've hoped to do. And I'm really pleased that um, that you, who seem to be an extremely close and generous reader, have actually noticed that about the book.
1: Well, I think it jumped out, actually, also because there are so many fascinating stories in the book. Another part of the book is the history of colonialism, and, yeah. and, and the 50s appear to be a very, very interesting decade when I, when I read your book. And then you say that by the 1, 1967, that this period of decolonization ended. And after that, I, we would assume from a traditional point of view that these states would become sovereign states. And it appears that a a lot of the infrastructure, a lot of the regulation that were made, a lot of the new systems that that were put in place, that they were not made by sovereign states and not to mention their own people, but by foreign capital interests. And I know it's a bit vulgar and I think we should always be a little cautious about analogies, but is it fair to say that this was kind of an an extension of of colonialism, but with other means? So it's really interesting
2: that question, because one of the things that's really exciting about the 1950s is that it is a time that comes after the massive cataclysms of the Second World War, but also the massive um, movements for decolonization that happened in the interwar period. And of course, you know, the immediate post war period begins with the world's largest colony becoming free, you know, the India yeah. becoming becoming an independent state. And so what we see in that period of, particularly from the end of the Second World War, so from 1945 until about 1970, I would say globally, we see transformations happening that are actually quite interesting. So in the global north, for example, we see the expansion of the welfare states, right? We we see the, the, the expansion of for example, access to healthcare and education, um, of access to labor rights, um, of the establishment of systems of rule that were much more democratic, re- democratically responsive to their people. We see limitations placed on the movement of, and the work of capital, which, for example, in the 19th century, you know, the depredations of capital in the 19th century resulted in, in, in the devastations that happened in the subsequent times. And, of course, Marx, you know, write, writes about those depredations of capital extensively throughout the 19th century. So we see in this very brief period of about twenty-five years this extraordinary moment where in the global North you see this happening, and in the global South you have you see the moments for decolonization and a demand for recognition not only of their rights but also of their of their rights of access also to economic and social rights, um, uh, to, to, to political sovereignty, to, to citizenship, to um, to sort of equal access and to to dignity as well, um, and then of course we see the closure of that moment, that incredibly brief moment of sunlight. Um, First, by the emergence of sort of neoliberal rules in the global North. um, And of course, by the shutting down of those kinds of anti-colonial aspirations, not only because of the Cold War kind of clashes between Soviet Union and the US, which of course resulted in a lot of conflicts in a lot of places starting throughout that period, but also because of the kinds of leadership that emerges in the post-colonial world that align themselves with these greater powers to the detriment of their own people. We also see, of course, in a lot of the infrastructures that were put into place in the First World, um, in the immediate aftermath of the First World War, were of course intended to allow capital to flourish, but within limits, right? And so I think um, that it's really important to recognize that, suddenly all the limitations were removed from those rules and so you see with the emergence of neoliberalism uh, a kind of an, uh, an and also with the end of soviet union the incredible rise of the washington consensus um the reorientation of everything towards free trade structural adjustments reduction of labor rights and that kind of thing happens both in the global north and it happens in the global south as well and so it is we are living in the t- time of those kinds of neoliberal rules um, everywhere in the globe. And and what we see is that those kinds of rules that um, define the way trade is done, define the sort of the interrelations between humans and define the way capital tends to exploit people, um, those, those rules are in a sense in some instances, continuations of colonial rule, but they are also uh, an embodiment of the kind of the metropolitan empire that the US, you know, the metropolitan world, that the US empire has built um, pretty much since the end of the Second World War.
1: Well, there are so many more things I would love to ask you. So I just say testifies to the richness of your book that we talked about 10% of the book. But I have one last question for you, uh, because it's obvious reading your book that you're very interested in literature and that is a source of not only inspiration, but of also getting to know the world. And if you were to recommend one novel uh, to our listeners and our readers, what, what would you recommend?
2: Actually, I'm going to do three novels. I would recommend Moby Dick which I think is one of the funniest, most brilliant, most beautiful novels ever written, written in English. And the second novel that I would recommend is by a guy named B. Traven, which, uh, and it's called The Death Ship. Uh, B. Traven was a an, uh, gen- German anarchist who actually went to fight with revolutionaries in Mexico and wrote a number of really amazing books. But The Death Ship in particular is something about the condition of um, uh, seafarers, which is quite amazing. And finally, the, uh, the third novel that I would recommend is by Claude Mackay the great Jamaican writer and it's called The Marseille Romance Um, and it is about seafarers in Marseille and about the world of seafaring um, in the interwar period and so I think that between these three books you get a sense of the richness of, of the literature that is out there there's so much more that I could recommend
1: well, thank you so very much for taking your time, and thank you for your book. It's been wonderful. Thank you.
2: My pleasure, and it has been really nice to meet you, Rana. Thank you very much.
0: Det var mit interview med Lolly Halili, og jeg gentager lige at hans bog hedder "Side News of War and Trade Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula". Det er en fantastisk bog som er lige deler Thomas Piketty og Moby Dick, og så med er en masse virkelighed oveni. I næste uge skal jeg tale med en amerikansk forsker, som er en ny kæmpe stjerne på den intellektuelle venstrefløje. Det er Aaron Benanoff, som er gæsteunderviser på Humboldt Universitetet i Berlin, og som har skrevet en bog, der allerede er blevet oversat til adskillige sprog, som hedder Automation and the Future of Work. Det, som Aaron Benanoff forklarer i den bog, det er, at alle dem, der siger, at vi mister en masse arbejdspladser, På grund af kunstig intelligens, ny teknologi og hele digitaliseringen af vores produktionsapparat, de tager fuldstændig fejl. Det er ikke derfor, vi mister arbejdspladser. Hvorfor det så er, ja, det skal man høre med i næste uges langsomme samtaler for at finde ud af.